Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It is uh, a great week for us because uh, something very important is happening for Einstein and Gogo this month, which uh, some of you may have figured out, but I suspect a lot will have not. If you're a long-time listener of Einstein and Gogo, though, you will probably realize that it is our 30th anniversary this month. So the show's been now going for 30 years, which is a, a pretty big accolade. I think most radio shows don't last that long, but your interest in science has managed to keep us going for a very, very long period, and we are doing some really special stuff as a result. We've got a whole other guest coming up this month, including Jocelyn Bell, who you may remember was the amazing woman from Oxford who first discovered the pulsar. Missed out on the Nobel Prize at the time for it, but uh, she was on the show about 20 years ago. We're going to be talking to her again in a couple of weeks. We also will be talking to Terry Vertz, who is um, one of the astronauts who was one of the the sort of last commanders of the last pilots of the space shuttle programs and was on the International Space Station and sent us some of the most amazing photos that we've ever seen of this planet. He did literally tens of thousands of those and has a new book coming out. We'll be talking to Terry Vertz uh, very soon about that. But on the line with me now, actually, for our first show, uh, as part of our celebrations for the 30th anniversary of Einstein and Gogo, is Professor Brian Schmidt. He is a Nobel Prize winning physicist and, at the moment, is doing the very simple job of being the Vice Chancellor of the Australian National University. Good morning, Brian. Can you hear us? Uh, yes. Uh, good morning to you. Look, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for, for giving us the time today. I thought uh, it'd be great to discuss a few things over the next sort of 30 minutes if we, if we can. First of all, some of your work, but then more importantly, I think uh, more recently is how universities are, are coping in, in this um, very different world that we're in at the moment and how you're leading the show there up at ANU. So let's start off with your your astrophysics work because that's sort of a big part of my love is is that and i thought if we went back a bit and we just talked to people first of all about um a name that they all know which is they know the name hubble from the hubble space telescope but edwin hubble did some pretty amazing stuff which relates a lot to your work can you give us a bit of a rundown of of what he put forward in terms of our knowledge of the universe yeah, and I, it, it's not just Edwin Hubble, and I think it's really important to get the history right. So it really goes back to, uh, I think, a, a guy by the name of Vesto Melvin Seifert that almost no one uh, knows of, but really important. He was in uh, Arizona, and he was observing galaxies. His main job was actually to observe Mars for Percival Lowell, who thought, there were uh, canals on Mars, but mm -hmm. he went out and he took spectra of galaxies. And spectra, of course, are the colors spread out uh, like the rainbow. And what he noticed when he looked at galaxies was, first of all, their, their spectra uh, spread out, looked very much like the spectra of stars. Uh, but there was, a, there was a change, which is they were shifted red Every single galaxy minus about two or three he looked at, the spectra was shifted red. And that he knew would occur because of the Doppler shift, the same thing that makes a siren change in pitch as an ambulance goes by you. That same thing uh, affects light. They're both waves. And the, the weird thing is every object was moving away from us. And, you know, that was a mystery in 1916, 1917 when he discovered it. Uh, Another guy uh, came out, uh, and again, probably not known by most of your audience, but certainly know, well-known within astronomy, Georges Lamont. He was a Belgian monk, uh, a very eccentric guy by all accounts, and he went through and did a PhD sort of remotely at MIT. He took Einstein's equations of general relativity and realized that they uh, – uh, predicted when you put them into a universe that the universe should be expanded 
Okay, this is something Alexander Friedman had discovered uh, as well, and Georges Lamont did it uh, him, himself uh, independently. Uh, he also realized that Vesto Melvin Slipher's data of redshift of the of the expanding universe and um, also Hubble's data of measuring distance, which I'll come to in just a second, sort of all hung together. And he made the the mistake, it turns out, of showing his work to Einstein in 1927 at a very famous Solvay conference in Belgium, which is where he was from. And Einstein basically said, your mathematics is impeccable. By the way, Friedman's already done this work on the theory but your physics is abominable uh and kind of left it there and you know after you get shut down by einstein at a conference you kind of go and to your corner for a little bit hubble uh you know did not know about that work reputedly although i think there's some questions about that uh and he put it all together in 1929 definitively showed the distances the redshifts that the further away you are the faster you're moving away, uh, did not really connect it to the theory, but other people around him did. Uh, and in 1929, he came out and said, the universe is expanding just like, uh, as I think the metaphor of the day was, raisins in a raisin cake as it expands in the oven, every raisin moves away from every other raisin. Think of those raisins as galaxies. Our universe uh, is like that, and everything, the further away, the faster it moves away from us. So mm. a very long answer to your first question. Mm. No, it, it's super interesting, and uh, I suspect then somewhat after that, the idea of the universe expanding must have been tempered by the ideas that galaxies all have mass, these will gravitationally attract one another, and that expansion would be curtailed, presumably. Was that the next phase of thinking? Yeah, well, it turns out the theory had already, from 19, uh, 1923, and Alexander Friedman uh, anticipated that the universe would uh, be made up of stuff that has mass. And so as the universe expands, the gravitational attraction of everything in the universe would attract everything else, and that the universe would slow down over time. And so that is what I was taught when I went to graduate school, starting in 1989, uh, and it was sort of lamented of the fact that we've known about this since 1923, and we had made exactly zero progress really mm. on it in the pre, you know, in the in the 60 years that had come. So it was a really interesting problem, sort of like, uh, well, it was the Rosetta Stone as presented to me if I can be honest, in my cosmology class. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, I, was, um, I just pulled out a couple of astronomy books from my undergraduate days. Uh, in fact, one of them was uh, a colleague you probably know, uh, Professor Rachel Webster from the University of Melbourne. She, was, uh, uh, she taught me one of my undergrad subjects, and, and I was just looking at where things were at in about, this was probably published uh, around the 80, late 80s, and I think at that point it was the expanding universe. So it was, you know, and there were some issues with gravitation and so forth, but certainly long before, um, or, you know, the ideas were cemented long before that book was, was published, as you say, and we've just been in that period of, of no change. Now, then we get to the point where, where you and your team started, started working on it, and my understanding is there were sort of two real options that were in play at the time, the expanding universe – which where things are just expanding or the expanding but slowing down expansion version of things. But there wasn't a third option that really was being considered that seriously, was there? The idea that it might be accelerating that expansion, that seems a bit counterintuitive. Yeah, so the the three, I mean, there, there, were, there were two options, I think, that were widely being considered. Is the universe slowing down a little bit or is the universe slowing down a lot? Slowing down a little bit means it's not very dense, mm -hmm. uh, and the universe keeps expanding forever. And then there's the slowing down a lot. Uh, and there's a lot, as in it just comes to rest in an infinite time in the future. So the universe kind of uh, is perfectly balanced, it turns out, uh, between uh, a future where it, uh, it, it, it essentially collapses on itself, too heavy, collapses on itself or too light goes on forever so so those were sort of in some sense there were three answers with with normal gravity which is 
expands forever, expands forever, but eventually comes down uh, to rest at, at an infinite time in the future, or uh, expands, stops, goes in reverse, and collapses into what I always like to call the Ganab-Gib, but only recently realized Douglas Adams invented uh, well before me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah, I stole yeah. it from someone else, which was my PhD supervisor. So the interesting thing is all the way back to 1917, Albert Einstein realized that his equations of general relativity, uh, and he hadn't really thought through the whole thing, but he realized the equations were dynamic. Uh, that was that the universe would be in motion and somehow. And he didn't like that because he looked around and said the universe is static. Uh, and, you know, even Einstein got some things wrong. Uh, it's static right here on Earth, sort of, but it's not actually static, as we, we learned with Hubble and others. So he realized his equations were missing something as he formulated in 1915. They could have a term, a term he called the cosmological constant, uh, but we think of now when we know more it's like the universe being full of energy everywhere so every piece of space has energy associated with it and it turns out that in his equations this stuff rather than being attractive by gravity is repulsed sort of repulses itself everywhere and that could cause the universe to speed up over time, for example. Uh, and he, in 1917, thought, oh, maybe I can use this stuff to balance out gravity and make the universe static. Well, it turns out it didn't work very well because the universe was unstable anyway. Uh, the equations here are an awful lot like, believe it or not, COVID-19 in the Melbourne population, that you, you tend to be either going up or going down. It's You don't just stabilize, it turns out. But that's another conversation we could have. So this cosmological constant, often referred to as Einstein's greatest blunder, he actually said in German, I was acting like a donkey sticking with it for so long. Uh, but it keeps on rearing its head. And so it was by the time I went to graduate school, the cosmological constant was a bit of a joke. It was the thing to invoke when, you're, when your observations were wrong. Uh, because people kept on saying, oh, it's the cosmological constant. Oh, no, they just screwed up. So that mm -hmm. had happened three or four times. And when we started our uh, uh, experiment, when I moved to Australia in 1995, uh, I, I joked, I remember to a friend earlier, and I said, oh, as long as we don't discover the cosmological constant, we'll be just fine. Because we were trying to measure, was the universe going to slow down a little bit or slow down mm. a lot? That was what our, our goal was. Yeah. And, and that, that part is what I wanted to get to next, is this fascinating series of measurements that you went, went out to make with regards to determining this. How do you go about measuring distances when all you've got is the starlight essentially to, to play with over the, the types of you know, literally billions of, of light years that you want to be measuring? How do you go about that? What's the process? Yeah, so it turns out when we want to measure how the universe is slowing down or you know how, what distances are in this experiment, we didn't need to know exactly how many centimeters something was away. We needed to know how many times further away was a distant object than the nearby object. So we didn't actually have to have uh, an absolute measurement. I just needed to have a relative measurement. Uh, so that made it easier. And that was made easier by having exploding stars called supernovae behave really, really well. Uh, they're some of the brightest things in the universe. Uh, we call these things type 1a supernovae there are many many different types of them but these are a very particular type of explosion when we believe a white dwarf reaches uh a mass of about 1.4 times our sun it turns out it ends up as a giant thermonuclear bomb so not a hiroshima sized bomb but a uh, a, a super sun sized bomb so they're big uh they shine about five billion times brighter than our sun they create the iron we export out of this country. That's where most of it uh, was formed in these explosions. These things are so bright, my colleagues in Chile uh, uh, were able, who are on, my, on the team, uh, were able, through a series of experiments in the early 1990s, 
show that you could essentially figure out the relative wattage on these standard light bulbs. So I could tell if this was a 100-watt light bulb or a 110-watt light bulb by how fast they rose and fell and their color. Hmm. So if you look at how blue they were and how fast they rose and fell, you could really calibrate really accurately uh, the light bulb to probably 4 or 5%, which by astronomers' terms the factor of two we were normally used to was was remarkable. So they uh, were people I worked with during my PhD thesis, and they were part of the team that we formed in the end of 1994 to go out and measure these things. And because they were so bright, and we were just getting to the digital world we all know and love now in 1994, we knew we could use this new digital technology to look back probably on order of 10 billion years into the past uh, to go through and uh, do an experiment where we measure how fast the universe expands back in time. We measure the redshift of these exploding stars and we go through and measure their relative distance back in time. And so that was the experiment that I pitched to Jeremy Mould, the director of Mount Stromlo, when I came here uh, in 1995, I applied for the job, uh, I guess, at the end of 93. And can I say, it took me four attempts to get a job at ANU. Uh, it was a hard, it was hard yakka to, to get my job here, but I persisted. Yeah, it'd be nice if you could sort of go back and tell yourself that you'll be the VC one day. Uh, I wouldn't have believed myself because <laughs> why would you do that to yourself even if you had the opportunity? Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so you've got you've got these standard candles and you know exactly where they are. And at that point, of course, you're able to calculate how fast they're traveling away from us and and all of that information. So so that then led you to to find that our universe was not behaving the way everyone had thought for quite a long time. That's right. So what we do is for each object, we measure its relative distance compared to a relatively nearby set of objects that are between maybe 50 and 500 million years. So still a long ways away, but mm. that's the neighborhood of the universe and compare these ones five to 10 billion years in the past. And so each one gets us gets us a measurement of how the universe has behaved over that interval. And what we found was that uh, the objects mentioned, you know, the, every time we looked at the, uh, the objects, essentially every single one indicated that the universe was expanding slower in the past and hadn't slowed down, but had sped up. And that was crazy because, you know, gravity attracts. And, oh, my God, what have we done We've rediscovered the cosmological constant again. We've known every time that's happened, it's been wrong. Yep. So needless to say, I was not very happy about when we discovered it in 1997 and assumed we must have made some horrible mistake and that my astronomy career was more or less finished. Yeah. I can. Imagine, I mean, there must have been some great conversations there where you you literally were trouble-solving trying to work out what was wrong with the data. And, and you had so much data from multiple locations all correlating together to give you the same answer, presumably. Absolutely. I mean, we had you know data from I think eight different telescopes. There was twenty of us on five on five continents, and we could work twenty four seven because uh, astronomers. You know, one of the interesting things of why things like astronomy are important is email really got its out of the military hold in astronomy. Mm. We had been using astro uh, email since even before I started as an undergraduate, so in the early 80s. So it was a very uh, a network, already fully networked. Uh, we could work 24 hours a day because we had people scattered around the world. Try this, try that, try this, try that. But after about uh, six weeks of trying, uh, and I remember the day, the 8th of January, uh, 1998, I wrote to Adam Reese, who, you know, been writing up the paper and we had gone through and we had tried everything, uh, every test we could, and we could not make it go away. Mm. It just was very stubborn. And I said, well, all right, it's the end of our careers, but we're going to have to publish this now. Uh, and that was an interesting day because I think it's worthwhile people understanding what a, a scientific career is like. I had a three-year job at Mount Stromlo when I came here. 
And it finished on the 31st of December, 1997. Yeah, right. And I only, by the absolute skin, you know, uh, just, you know, the, the, the whiskers on my chin got a job. I had three people turn it down. The job I started on the 1st of January made the discovery seven days later. So uh, almost someone else's discovery. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great story. And, and one of the things I, I noticed, which is very interesting, is, you know, when you, when you talk about these timelines and when you did all this work, what kind of data rate were you guys dealing with with Chile and other and other observatories? I mean, you, you, I mean, dial up would have seemed like an amazing speed enhancement in nineteen ninety five ish. Yeah, I mean the 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 whole we had a very good connection to the United States. Through, so uh, Australian universities invested in Rnet, and yep. so the actual internet amongst the universities here and the university and then across the Pacific. Uh, it, it started getting pretty slow to the Pacific, um, to Hawaii, etc. But then down to Chile, where most of the data was coming from, we our our internet connection was about one character per second. Hmm. You know, A R E space, you know, etc. It yep. was slow, so we had to write software that allowed us to work asynchronously. We used email, so I would. I would essentially use stuff that you know people don't even know about called UU encode and writing our own compression software and got all sorts of stuff. And we would I would email uh, little files of these tiny little postage stamps of images because the the data we were taking at the time we would take about fifty gigabytes of data a night. Now people say, oh, that's not that bad, but in 1994, 1995. Uh, hard drives, the biggest hard drive you could buy at the time was a gigabyte. Yeah. So we were literally filling up everything imaginable, every computer imaginable, using every computer imaginable that were very fast computers for the day to process through this data. And then I had to literally remotely have it sent to me in Australia. And email was nice because it kept trying because the Internet would go down all the time. And, you know, four hours later, you would get this little postage stamp that said, is this a supernova? And I'd look at it and go, nope, <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. And then we spent a lot of time on phone calls. And, you know, the only thing that was a blessing was that at least in the middle of the night in Chile, it was the middle of the day here. Mm. And so I could, I could actually work while the data was coming in sensibly uh, and get some sleep since yeah. I had a a three-month-old child at the time. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, look, struggling it's, on that as well. Yeah, I can imagine it would have been a, a, a real challenge. And uh, I know around that time, I, I bought my first ever um, IBM-compatible computers, as we used to talk about them, uh, to write up my thesis. And I really shelled out for a 420 megabyte hard drive, and I felt very special. I remember, I remember keeping it for many years after uh, the computer long since died. But uh, things were just different back then. Now, Brian, we're going to take a short break for some music, but happy to hang around, and we'll continue this conversation. Sure. All right, folks, we're just going to take a short break for a piece of music, and we'll be back in just a moment, continuing to speak to Professor Brian Schmidt, the VC of the Australian National University and Nobel Prize laureate. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I am having a great discussion this morning for our 30th anniversary celebrations for the month of August with Professor Brian Schmidt, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist from 2011 and currently the Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University. Brian, we were just talking about all your work, which, of course, culminated in you winning... Uh, the Nobel. What what does a Nobel do for a scientist? Uh, well, a, a Nobel Prize is uh, it, it kind of comes out of the blue. You don't really know it's coming. I mean, my experience is everyone who thinks one's coming doesn't normally win one, but right. uh, they they really do come in. In my case, I had six minutes warning, and it sort of ionizes your life uh, and. You you do be, you become a focus of a huge amount of uh, attention, uh, especially in the first uh, year. But that attention continues, and I think the the real challenge there, there's a, a few challenges about them uh, is that uh, 
one, in my case, you know, 20 people in my team, uh, only two of us shared the Nobel Prize, the other 18 people, and all are part of the project. And, and the same thing when you're going to talk to um, uh, Jocelyn Bell, then there's things where, you know, you just get left out completely. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there is no doubt in my mind at all that that was a fundamental, horrible screw up. Uh and but it's also in some sense it's tough on on my team as well because they're part of it and you really do get the attention uh the 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 interesting thing is you do get a lot of attention and it uh it it is actually quite challenging to continue your work when you win a nobel prize because you have so much attention thrown at you unless you're literally you know, and some people do this successfully, but uh, not my frame of mind. You literally just have to tell people to go take a running jump and leave you alone. Because if you're not that firm, they don't leave you alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of my colleagues do that, and they are able to continue their work. But they're also known as not as being the not very nice Nobel Prize winners sometimes by uh, people. So in my case, uh, you know, you go out. You get these amazing opportunities. You get to meet just about anyone you can. If I'm honest, it's made my life interesting, but it doesn't make you happier. And I think people need to realize that having something like this makes your life interesting, but it comes with a lot of responsibility. And it, uh, as I said, I would have been, quite frankly, just as happy not winning a Nobel Prize. Uh, The discovery was great to be part of, and that that is, to my mind, the most important thing. And, you know, one of the reasons I decided to become a vice chancellor of a university, something I, I literally would have never had any interest in doing, if I'm honest, is because it was a way for me to reset my life and to gain control of having a purpose that was my own, where I could use the Nobel Prize, hopefully, to some sort of societal good. Because I really do see universities mm-hmm. as being probably you know probably the most underrated institutions right now in society they were very well understood after world war ii they're not so well understood now but they are absolutely essential uh and it's a place where you can do good yeah um brian in terms of the the role you're playing at the moment i mean universities have been particularly hard hit and not supported during this pandemic at least financially, by by governments in a way that's substantial, like we've seen in other sectors. I mean, what sort of challenges are you facing up there at ANU at this point in time? Well, the problems we're facing are throughout the sector, so uh, I wouldn't want to think we have a, a unique problem. Uh, you know, the, the challenge is what what's the future look like? We don't have a, a clarity on what the future is. Uh, you know, the, the role of international students in our university is, is you know, very big here. Uh, and, you know, what does that look like next year or the year after? I don't think any of us know. Uh, the other challenge we have is that, you know, there's a whole generation of young people who are re- uh, researching uh, in, you know, all sorts of areas. And suddenly there's this 30% hit to the research budget of the nation. Mm. And that's the part where I'm really hoping that the government does intercede because, you know, that's the place where I think a university's value is not understood. The That research, oh, you know, it's just stupid, crazy stuff of no value. That's not true. When you actually go through and ask the economist to say, what is the value to that, to the economy? It's huge and it's bigger than the direct revenue from foreign students. It's a lot bigger, but it's hidden, Mm. and it's long-term. And so, you know, tell me the rich nation that doesn't invest in research. Well, it turns out Australia has been the one that's probably done the best, but a lot of the research investment has been hidden through these uh, international student fees supporting, supporting research. So... I know that, for example, Duncan Maskell, uh, who is the vice chancellor of Melbourne, uh, is on a committee with uh, Minister Tian, and they're looking at the future of research funding. They have to get this right, because Australia will be a much poorer country economically into the future 
if we don't. And I know it's not, you know, obvious, right? You won't, you won't, the hit mm. won't be tomorrow, but that's the thing I'm really worried about. And, you know, I'm also worried about making sure my students, I've got 1,700 Victorian students. So 10% of my student population are from Melbourne. All right. How do I make sure that in this time when you're locked down, they get a great education? Uh, make sure we're ready for them to come back to campus as soon as things clear up there. Just the logistics of that mm. is is nuts. Uh, and then, you know, planning for the future. And you got we sort of have to make a call of what the future looks like. And I think, honestly, that the future for higher education in this university in, this country is to be about 15% smaller than it was in 2019. Yeah. That's, that's my sense of what it's going to be. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing, Brian. One of the, one of the um, things that crosses my mind a lot is how you'll go about dealing with appropriately supporting PhD students. And let me just run a few ideas past you there. You have some students who just started who really don't know what to do and have never been on campus. You've got some students in their write-up phase who are probably happy in some sense to be home and be able to you know, not be as distracted, although they're isolated. Then you have some in the middle whose experiments have stopped. You've had some whose experiments can't be restarted financially there's just so many different versions uh, you know international and domestic etc of the sorts of students um, that you have and the types of challenges they face it, it seems like an incredibly complex task to be able to you know support them all in a meaningful way so that they they feel valued which is i think one of the things that many phd students across the sector have struggled with even pre-pandemic uh, it is. And you have just explained that you can't have a one-size-fits-all solution. And so from my perspective, we're trying to uh, have bespoke solutions that are appropriate uh, because you're right. Uh, if, you're, if you're out doing you know, field work in Indonesia, I've got a whole bunch of they, – they can't get there. Mm. So what do you do? Um, and the answer is you can do part of your thesis, not that way. Uh, and then there's a question, do you postpone? Do we just have people go out and, you know, basically defer their PhD for a year? Uh, uh, there's just, not, unfortunately, not a lot of jobs right now as well. So the options are limited. So I, I do think that uh, if we're prepared to accept the fact that 2020, for some students, is a completely lost year, and indeed, it won't just be 2020. It'll be half of 2021. So I think for some students, there's 18 months of a lost year. We need to, in a bespoke way, be able to go through and treat them as it's a lost year for them. Uh, and in the process, you know, we can be doing other things. We can be uh, working on some of their skills, communication skills, get out, learn to do new st statistical techniques, get out and learn programming Learn uh, your writing, your communication, uh, your business integration skills, all sorts of stuff. So I don't want people sitting there twiddling their thumbs, and I, most PhD students don't. But we, they have to have confidence that if they lost 18 months of their, their life doing this, that they're going to be supported. So uh, I'm, I'm going with that frame of mind, but I will be honest, I, I can't completely fund everything myself. It's pretty tight right now financially mm. and and just uh, i suppose the big you know bear in the room there is this idea of you know what the mental health conditions are for many of these students because we know that mental health tends to drop off a bit during the course of a phd and depending on where you start that can be dangerous or not but if you start off in a precarious place then a phd can really knock you down below what's you know reasonable to manage whilst doing a phd is is there much thought going into into how the university will respond to that because that seems like a a pretty big challenge on a normal day but at the moment it, it will affect the majority of students rather than a relatively small percentage, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think it's a relatively small percentage even under normal mm. uh, conditions. I suppose 30% so, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's probably 20, 25% or mm. something would be a good guess. So I, we, we are absolutely have provisions in to, to try to deal with this. I think we all have to admit it's it's imperfect uh, everything we can do. And I should also say there's a shared responsibility. Uh, 
when do these issues, when are they mine issues and when are they society issues, yep. et cetera. So it's a complicated minefield. But the one thing COVID-19 has made clear is uh, we, have to, we have to do something. And uh, so it has, I think, you know, made very clear that activity needs to occur. I think it's made it, it the barriers for seeking help have lowered. It, there's not, the, the stigma is dropped a bit. And so, in, like everything, there's probably a good side to this. And I don't think what we put in place, which by, necess- by necessity has to have scale and, and be remote and all these things, uh, I think that those things can persist in the future. Uh, but I, I wouldn't want to say it's perfect. Mm. But uh, I, I think the other thing that has, you know, for me, it's about making sure people know We've got their backside. We're not going to just dump them into the dumpster because it's convenient during this tough time, giving people that that trust and confidence. But I also think one of the features that I've seen of mental health is people think it's just them. And, you know, I've been pretty open that this is stressful for me as well as a vice chancellor. And I haven't really had many problems in my life. I'm stressed as well. And I'm happy to let people know when I'm stressed and I take days off when I need to. so I think it's more of a shared experience. And, and in that sense, there are some advantages where people don't think mm. it's just them. It, they know this is a normal thing to be. And, and, and in some sense, that, that helps empower them. Yeah, definitely. And Brian, I think um, it's important to hear that from a vice chancellor. You two are admitting those difficult days and when you need a bit of a break because um, it's it's got to come from from the top. And you know, people need to feel permission to you know just just let themselves have a bit of a break. And and this is harder than everyone. Now, just before um, I, I let you go, I thought um, I, I've no, look. We just we just launched uh, NASA just launched a new rover to Mars. The the James Webb Telescope is hopefully. Uh, going up soon are, are you are you still researching i mean what what's sort of blowing your mind at the moment with all this stuff uh well uh i guess the the sure the sheer amount of progress we're making uh you know to my mind the really big game new game in town uh, is gravitational wave astronomy mm. uh and we have the Ozgrav center uh which is a center of excellence that many of the universities are involved in and you know that's just the what we could do there brand new uh is remarkable five years ago we knew we might be able to do that at some point but the fact that we can do it right now is great uh and then there's this huge new sets of instrumentation the uh, the ability to map the digital sky every night is is just we have a sort of a movie of the sky and and i feel kind of proud because you know, our survey was one of the first deep, big things like that to, to do it that way. But the the scale of it's, a, you know, 10,000 times what we used to do every night and done by all sorts of people so much better mm. than we did. So I was at the beginning of that. The, the sad part is, is it's like this giant machine now. And it's not a single person activity. It's a thousand person activity. So. On, on the flip side, I do see astronomy beginning to lose a little bit of its intimacy um, that we've had. But I don't know. There's just every week there's a new discovery of something very fundamental in our uh, in our understanding. Mm. Uh, and I just uh, that sheer pace of progress is remarkable. And uh, I think uh, we live in a very special time for astronomy uh, and it will slow down over time. Um, but we are really picking the low-hanging fruit every day, right? Yeah. Look, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I wish you the very best of luck up there as VC of the Australian National University because I know that's going to be a, a you know, a tough job that I, I suspect most people will not envy you for over the coming year, and um, hopefully you'll see the, the university, a very strong university in Australia through this difficult time. Thanks so much for being our guest today on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you very much, and I can only say at least I'm not running an airline. And it could be worse. Yep. Thanks, Brian. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break for some music, and then we'll be back with the rest of the team to do some news for the day. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple R. I've got the rest of the team on the line now. Good morning, Anu. How are you going? 
Hi, Shane. How's it going? I'm going well. Uh, we've got Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. Good morning. And Dr. Laura, looks like uh, morning, you keep moving around. <laughs> I do. I'm trying to get my internet connection stable for you, Shane. Ah, very good. Very good. Now, uh, as you probably heard on the show earlier, it is uh, we're celebrating this month the 30th anniversary of Einstein and Gogo. It's starting to feel a bit old. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, and we've got some amazing things coming up. And one of the things I wanted to mention for those of you who are out there on Twitter and so forth, but uh, we do these programs called uh, 20 PhDs in 20 minutes. And basically, it's a fast, a fast run of uh, giving each researcher just a minute to talk about their research. They're very popular, and we're going to be doing another one next week, and I'll be sending out the instructions on that in a day or so, or maybe today, whenever I get around to it, because I'm, you know, usually after the show, I'm pretty lazy after interviewing a Nobel Prize winner. I need to kind of recover with a Bacardi or something, but uh, I will get those uh, details out. But next week, we're going to interview 20 amazing PhD students as part of our celebrations for the 30th. And we will also be talking to Jocelyn Bell, who should have won the Nobel Prize for the, discovering the Pulsar, but her naughty supervisor took it instead back in the days when that happened. And, well, actually probably still happens. But uh, And we will also be interviewing Terry Virts, um, an extraordinary astronaut who used to pilot the space shuttle in a couple of weeks as well. But we're going to do some news right now. Uh, Dr. Ray, do you want to start us off? Sure. And I, I want to thank you, Dr. Shane, for having news after that awesome interview with Brian Schmidt, because, <laughs> you know, how do you follow that? You really can't. Um, that was just fascinating. Uh, what grabbed my interest this week was uh, research from the UK and, and South Africa as a team where they had got a much better understanding of the geological origins of the massive sarsens, which are the really big stones in Stonehenge. So as you know, Stonehenge was the estimated to built around 2500 BCE, so it's a little old. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate about where they think those big, the really big rocks came from. The little blue stone rocks in it came from Wales. They figured that out. So researchers there used a combination of non-invasive uh, chemical analysis using um, a portable X-ray fluorescence spectrometer. Oh, sounds exciting. As well as uh, coupled plasma mass spectrometry to get chemical analysis on, on actual little pieces of the rocks. And what they found was is they actually then surveyed that type of rock, boulder, all over England, and actually found the most likely site for the 52 of them that are still standing is actually not where they thought it was. It was actually in a, a place called Wood Ends, which is about three or four kilometers closer than what they originally thought. Um, so it was about 25 kilometers away. And, and this is interesting because it really, in an archaeological sense, says, well, some of the peoples had said, well, maybe they used this path or that path to get the rocks there. And as it turns out, that wouldn't have been the case. So it really does revise the archaeology in this space as well. Um, and it, it's just kind of amazing that, um, you know, these things are six to seven meters tall, 20 to 30 metric tons. And whether or not, uh, what, 5,000 years ago-ish or 4,500 4, years ago, they dragged them. 30 kilometers or 25, that's still pretty impressive. Um, mm. And uh, so it was just, uh, you know, this is a debate that's been gone ongoing for quite a while. Um, and the only other thing that really I thought was interesting was that the uh, the, the chemical methods they used, X-ray fluorescence uh, and the uh, coupled plasma mass spectrometry are very common in Australia in minerals processing and identifying different types of rocks and what ore is there. So I, I thought that was a a neat hmm. connection. The tools they basically used were the same ones we use in in geology and mineralogy in Australia as well. Oh, very cool. Interesting stuff. That keep, it keeps on giving, doesn't it, Stonehenge? No matter yeah. when we think we know it all, there's even more information to come out. Now, uh, time to geek out about space anew. We, you and I have been looking at this all week. There's been some exciting things happening, and there's an exciting thing happening right now. Um, That's right. Yeah, it's, it's actually been a very big week for space, as we've been following on Twitter and on NASA TV Live. Uh, we've had the Mars 2020 mission launch off on Thursday evening, mm. Thursday night, I believe it was, for us. And it's it's got a rover and a helicopter on board this time, which is just the design of both those things have just been, you know, oh, blowing my mind over here. We have Perseverance, which is the rover. And it's aiming to land on a lake bed and hoping to do some chemical analysis to find out whether there are signs of life. So it's a dry lake bed, everyone. It's not, yep. not no, actually water. Um, no surfing. 
Yeah, <laughs> no swimming. Uh, it's got two microphones on board this time, so we're finally going to know what Mars actually sounds like, so a little bit of human nuance there. Very exciting. Can, can I make and... a prediction, Anu? Can I, for the people out there, my prediction is... <laughs> yeah, with varying volumes of that sound. That That's my guess, but, you know, I'm happy to be proved wrong. I mean, what if we actually did text signs of, I don't know, aliens? I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to be wrong on that one, but it, it'd be... I, I, mean, probably, I think you're probably going to be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So but, n- no chance for house music then? No, nah, probably bum, not. Bum, bum, no. Yeah, probably not. But it, it's It'll be a, interesting to see how sound does um, actually, I guess, work in the atmosphere there as well and how that... No. Yeah, I can't wait to see this uh, this little helicopter, this little drone they're sort of ascending up to see how it goes because it has such a, a thin atmosphere to work with. I think it's got multiple yeah. rotors. It weighs basically nothing. And we have Ingenuity, of course, the actual helicopter itself, uh, twin blades. And I was really surprised to learn that the blades actually move in opposite directions. Mm. A few years ago, I actually drew a design for one of these um, just because for fun. And someone told me that it wouldn't actually work. And apparently, it does. <laughs> well, not here, but it works on Mars. Right, yeah, not yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. And uh, it, is, it is something that can be done, achieved intergalactic. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and, and my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong in you, but the idea is to bring, is to actually, in a few years' time, send some further missions to Mars to bring back samples that this rover will have collected. So bring them back to Earth. Correct. Yeah. That's right. And that'll be very useful because currently Curiosity does have a lab on the rover itself, but it's only able to do very minute mm. levels of analysis. And we really need like the more in-depth stuff. We need like a full comprehensive lab, which yeah. we, can, we can have on Earth. Yeah. Um, well, it's and- yeah, very exciting stuff. Um, we're gonna. There's so much more to talk about. We're gonna have to talk about it more in the coming weeks. But um, there's so much more to talk about. And of course, the, the the two astronauts that went up to the International Space Station are literally leaving right now, and we'll be coming home soon. So hopefully, we'll see them right. safely back Bob in. And Doug, Bob and uh, Doug, yep. Bob and Doug will hopefully achieve splashdown at around 4:48 a.m. tomorrow morning Australian Eastern Standard Time. So yep. if you are checking in nasa live tv yep it's cool to watch dr laura what do you got well listening to you guys talk about space you know you're getting so emotional and so i'm wondering <laughs> are you guys getting any goosebumps from that oh yeah, yeah really we, we get very we get very excited me and the new about so space my piece of news is about goosebumps and why we get them because if, if you guys thought about you know when you get emotional when we get cold we get goosebumps right does anyone know why my guess would have been that it helps with evaporation in some way. Well, how we think about it or how like scientists have thought about it up until this point is it's just like this evolutionary remnant of when we had fur. And oh. this is and, oh. and whether what how we preserve this in evolution is something that Charles Darwin used to write about all of the time. And it makes sense why fairy animals have goosebumps. When you get a goosebump, your hair stands on end. If you had a lot of fur, that would give you a protective barrier from the cold. Or also, um, you get goosebumps when you're emotional, when there's a lot of dopamine during your fight and flight response. And you know, if you have a dog or a cat and they get a little, you know, agitated, their hair will stand on end. It's to make them look bigger. The same with hedgehogs, their spikes will stand on end. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's totally like legit for animals but for humans like is it a huge benefit our arms arm hair standing on end no does this do anything for us or is it just a completely useless remnant of you know why and so why was it preserved what was what was the mechanism of this so um researchers at harvard university have published this week in the heavy hitting journal cell they think they've got the answer or at least one of the reasons why humans have preserved this seemingly useful useless reaction in response to the cold and that's because goosebumps um stimulate new hair follicle growth interested Shane? yes i'm very interested can i get these on my head well yes i mean because there's a lot of men out there that might be like oh my god can i stimulate more goosebumps tell tell us more quickly tell us more yeah i'll quickly tell you more (laughs) so um when you get a goosebump you get a contraction of the erector pili at the base of every hair there's a little muscle and you get a contraction of that and that's involuntary. It's part of our sympathetic nervous system. You react in the cold. Sympathetic nerve kind of creates that involuntary contraction. It releases. It goes flat. Now, what by using electron microscopy, they found that the nerve wrapped around that um, 
that muscle, but it's also wrapped around the stem cells. So when you get um, a contraction of that nerve, it stimulates their stem cells to activate and you get new hair follicle growth. Now, of course, then the question immediately is, well, if you're bored, can you stimulate hair growth? Mm. And unfortunately not, because yeah. you've lost the connection with the muscle from the nerve. And so they actually found in mice, if you were to remove the nerve, you, you lose that direct connection between the nerve and the stem cells. What's the point of this story? Well, it's just an amazing way how stem cells will interact with our environment. And also on my research, I did find that, you know, um, dead people also permanently have goosebumps. It's like rigor mortis. You get a permanent contraction. Yeah. Wow. Are there any people who can, like, control their goosebumps? Like, like, you know how blinking is both a voluntary and involuntary action? No. Totally involuntary. Just keep playing, like, the right music that makes you emotional or talk about space. Talk about space. Well, that, that, Whatever yeah. floats your boat. Yeah. Well, I think that works real well. I'm sure all the listeners have got goosebumps just hearing about the new Perseverance rover. I mean, that goes about saying. At least saying. four people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love having you guys on the line. You're so supportive. Uh, good chatting to you, Laura, Ray, and Anu. Thanks so much for doing news for us today. And uh, we're going to see you again real soon. Thank, Thank you. you. See you Thank soon. you. See you, guys. Folks, uh, that's pretty much it for today in the Einstein and Gogo world. We have got a huge month coming up for you, though, in the coming weeks, so enjoy that. And, of course, then followed by the Radiothon, which is so important for for us here at Triple R. Um, but for now, uh, myself, Dr. Shane, I'm going to hand over to the team from Eat It, and I uh, hope you have a very great Sunday, and we will talk to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.